you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read beginning in verse 7 and continue on to the end of the chapter to verse 18. Do you have the words on the screen back there, Andy? Thank you. My computer hasn't uh, decided to reboot as I'm doing this, so let's read from the screen above and see if that helps. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For for if, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that some, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your help, even as we look at your word this morning. We know that your word itself is full of glory. We know that we don't have eyes to behold it apart from the illumination of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it, to help us to to comprehend it, to help us to believe it, to help us to walk in light of your word. We pray, Father, that uh, your Spirit will continue to give us uh, more and more of the ability to, to walk with you, to know you, to fellowship with you, to love you, and to love your people. Lord, we, we pray that your word would give us life and light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, so someone, I need a deacon to come up here and help me for one second. Somebody get up here and reboot this thing or something. Keith, you want to help me? It's having issues. We're going to start without it. All right, so basically, I, I wanted to tell you that um, uh, my favorite short story, thank you very much, Keith. Um, just get me started back up at the homepage. Uh, my favorite short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, is, a, is a tale called um, The Minister's Black Veil. Has anybody ever read this? The Minister's Black Veil? Uh, if, if you know Nathaniel Hawthorne, all of his stories are a little bit on the darker side. Uh, he came from a Puritan background, but I don't think he really ever understood the gospel that was preached by the Puritans. And so he really focuses primarily on the total depravity of men and never gets around to seeing the gospel, which is a shame, but it's also quite fun reading his stuff because you see the, the depravity in all men in that sense. But anyway, in this particular story, uh, there's a, a reverend by the name of Mr. Hooper who's living somewhere in, in New England, and he's had a congenial relationship with the church for many, many years. 
But then all of a sudden, one day, as the, the bell tolls and church is about to begin, we see Reverend Hooper comes up to the pulpit, and he's wearing this semi-transparent black veil over his face. It's covering all of his facial features except for his lips and the bottom of his chin. And, of course, they, they think it's, a, it's unusual. You know, maybe they didn't do props and things of that nature back then in sermons. But nevertheless, he begins to preach a sermon, and the sermon is on secret sin. And as he's preaching on this sermon, it's the most gloomy disposition that the pastor has ever held. And he begins to say things that are very dark and, and very foreboding. And he begins to talk about sin in such a way that everybody feels the conviction uh, of, of, of their own guilt. And they become very guilty and, and feel the weight of, of God's condemnation in one way or another. And they're very glad to finally get relief from this sermon they they go out but then strangely later that night there's a wedding and at the wedding the pastor shows up and he's still wearing the black veil throughout the whole service everyone's kind of freaked out by this because why is he wearing this black veil it's supposed to be such a festive occasion now he's turned it into some sort of horror or freak show in that regard and then afterwards, finally, it's over with and they think well maybe he's just a fad you know whatever it is and and hopefully tomorrow He'll stop wearing that horrible, scary veil. Well, nevertheless, uh, <laughs> every day he's still wearing it. And it gets to the point where everyone begins to wonder whether or not this pastor, thank you very much, is actually having um, some secret sin of his own and that he's hiding uh, this secret sin from everyone else and, and no one has the guts to ask him about it. And so as a result, uh, they finally put up his fiance, So he's, he's engaged to be married. And uh, she's been wondering about this herself, but for one reason or another, uh, has not gotten it out of him. So she begins to sort of beg and plead, almost like, you know, Jezebel with what's the secret of Samson's hair? Why are you wearing this veil? Why won't you stop wearing this veil? And he never tells her. And in fact, it gets to the point where she, um, she says, you know, if you don't tell me, we're through. And he says, well, I made a promise that I would never explain the reason behind this veil. And so she breaks off the engagement. And for the rest of his life, for the next 30 years, he's wearing this veil every single day. And to the point where his fiancée, who still loved him and never got married uh, to anyone else, she ends up um, uh, on his deathbed promising him that he will, she will not remove the veil. And so he dies. And that's the end of the story. You think this is funny. It's actually based upon a true story. There was a minister in the 18th century whom they called Handkerchief Moody because this guy, who was a pastor, began to wear a veil over his face, and he did so the rest of his life. And apparently what had happened was he had killed a friend of his in a hunting accident and, and, and covered his tracks and hid the truth for a number of years, and finally he came under conviction of it. And when he did, he didn't want to tell anybody what it was. So he began to wear this veil over his face because he could not bear to deal with his own guilt. And so, long story short, uh, the, you'll, you can look it up. It's a true story. Very freaky, very scary, but nevertheless, can you imagine your pastor every Sunday wearing a black veil over his face? I thought maybe one Halloween I'd try it just for the fun of it. But I thought, well, the, the problem is it really does sort of counter the gospel in every way. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as he is defending his ministry against some of these men who've come in and have begun to attack him, he's accusing them, in a sense, 
of always wearing a veil over their face and sharing in the same guilt of their sin because they have never found peace and rest in Christ. Not only is it a hindrance to them, but they're scaring everyone else because no one else can understand the peace and rest in Christ because of the type of sermons that they're teaching, if you will. And so Paul is defending his ministry against these men. They're, 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 they're a type of Judaizer. And in fact, they're, they're trying to say that every Gentile must become like a Jew in order to be acceptable before God. So not only must they become circumcised, but they also must begin to follow the ceremonial law. And, and more importantly, they must find their standing before God in their ability to keep God's moral law. And if someone isn't doing well, then they should have no sense of assurance of salvation. So you can see why this is a, a big problem. Um, as I had shared with you uh, last week, if you were here, the Apostle Paul had planted the church in Corinth, but after planting it, he went on to other places to plant other churches, and he's gone for about a year and a half in the city of Ephesus, which is on the other side of the sea. And while he's gone, these men come into the church with letters from the church in Jerusalem saying that they have this authority to teach this stuff, and they're teaching really a false gospel because they're teaching instead of trusting in Christ and what he has done on the cross, we need to go back to the Mosaic Covenant and prove that we are good Jews, um, just as Moses was, if you will. So in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is comparing and contrasting these two covenants, the old Mosaic Covenant to the new covenant in Christ in order to defend his ministry versus the ministry of these Judaizers. And one of the first comparisons that he makes that, that, um, that was already hinted at in the previous passage is how the Mosaic Covenant is written on stone, whereas the new covenant is written on human hearts. If you remember um, when God gave the law at Mount Sinai to Moses, most of the laws were written down on papyri later on, but the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets, engraved in stone. There's always something external to men that was condemning unto men. But uh, uh, we see that the New Covenant is written in a different way altogether. After Israel had proved time and time again that they could not and would not keep God's law, two prophets explain this New Covenant that's coming that will make the, the power and the desire of the ability so different than it was before that uh, it will be something worthy of rejoicing over. In Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, the prophet Jeremiah makes this promise that in this new covenant, God is going to write his law on the very hearts of the people so that the law of God becomes something internal to man to where he not only knows the law but has the desire and the ability to want to keep it where he didn't have that before. Likewise, Ezekiel in his book, uh, chapter 36, makes the similar promise of the, the coming of the Holy Spirit that will come and dwell within man, changing his, his heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Again, enabling him to know and love the Lord their God. Uh, but again, these Judaizers were trying to convince these Gentile believers that they needed to go back to the written law on stone, that somehow the law that was written on their hearts wasn't good enough. They were teaching, in other words, that one's standing before God was not based upon what Christ has done, but, but upon what they need to do continually in order to prove their worth before God. And so Paul is saying this is a repudiation of the gospel altogether. It's anathema, and he wants to reject it in every way. So, so Paul is contrasting his ministry 
with theirs. And you'll notice in this, this long comparison that he makes, he's not holding back any punches at all. In fact, in verse 7, if you look there in the text, he calls their ministry a ministry of death. It's a ministry of death carved in stone. Now, of course, when Paul's saying this, he's not just referring to their ministry, but even Moses' ministry as a ministry of death. Now, why in the world would he call Moses' ministry a ministry of death? Well, in, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, Moses explains what the law can do, if you will. Uh, on the one hand, he says that uh, life is promised to all those who keep the law. Now, that sounds great. <laughs> if you can keep it, you can have life. If you obey God perfectly, you will be able to eat from the tree of life forever and ever, just as Adam and Eve did, right? Not exactly. In fact, the opposite is also true. If you keep the law, you can have life. It guarantees that. But Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, the prophet also reminds people that the soul that sins shall surely die. In other words, the soul that does not keep God's law is guaranteed death. And so what we find is that even though the law promises life to those who keep it, it doesn't give anyone the ability to keep it. And they can't keep it. And so really, the law is a ministry of death. The law will never give you life. I think I mentioned to you this before. Uh, one of the places that Ellen and I lived uh, when we first began in ministry was in the mountains of North Carolina, and there we found the greatest display of the Ten Commandments in the world. It's huge, massive display. On the whole side of a mountain, you can see Ten Commandments. No one gets saved by looking at that display of the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are not meant to save you. They're meant to condemn you in order that you would look for a Savior outside of yourself, you see. And even Paul comes to this conclusion in Romans chapter 7, verse 10. In reference to his own attempts at keeping the law, he says this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me because I could not keep it. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, and we will read more about this later on in 2 Corinthians, he keeps saying over and over and over again how much more of a Jew he is than any other Jew he knows, how he has tried to do everything according to the way that God has commanded, and yet he says it's all worthless. I cannot keep it. I'd rather trust in Christ. Now, you might begin to think, well, well maybe there's something wrong with the law. Not at all. The law is the perfect reflection of God's holiness and righteousness. It displays His glory in a magnificent way. The problem is not with the law. There's no defect in the law. The defect is in us, who not only cannot keep God's law, but who refuse to keep it. We don't want to keep it. That's the sin nature within us. We don't want to be ruled by some outside law. We want to be a law unto ourselves. And that's the very problem with human nature. We don't want to accept God's law. And therefore, the law does not promise us life. It only promises us death. Now, not only does Paul call the, the Old Covenant a ministry of death, he also calls it a ministry of condemnation. For even though the law promises blessings to those who keep it, it also promises curses upon anyone who breaks not all of it, but just one command. If you break just one of God's commands, you are promised condemnation. 
Remember Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden? How many sins did they commit? One. It says the same thing throughout the Pentateuch, throughout the Old Testament. You break just one, you're guilty of it all. And therefore, the law only promises condemnation. It cannot promise blessing. And that's sad because we see that even the people who tried to keep it the most, they even promised that they would keep it. They made, right after the Ten Commandments are given, twice they repeat, we will keep all of it. And you're like, you guys are a bunch of idiots. There's no way you're going to keep all that. But they promise to keep all of it. The minute they make that vow, they're already pronouncing a curse upon themselves because they cannot keep it. It only brings condemnation. The law will never bring blessing to one who's trying to live by the law. Nevertheless, Paul says that this commandment, this ministry of death, this ministry of condemnation, is still glorious. And that's the hard part. We don't understand how the law can be glorious if it has such consequences for sinful men, but that's actually part of the problem. The divine brilliance of God's law is so glorious that it causes men to be afraid because it's a perfect reflection of God, his righteousness and holiness. And when we see it, when we hear it, we're afraid. Do you remember at Mount Sinai, uh, right before God gives the Ten Commandments, the first time his glory comes down and dwells upon the mountain at Mount Sinai? Do you remember the experience that they're having when this happens? We see that this mountain is quaking when his glory descends. We see flashes of fire and and lightning. We hear loud blaring of trumpets and the deep reverberating voice of the Lord speaking from the top of the mountain. And it causes every single person to fear for their lives. They want nothing to do with the glory of God. They're scared to death of the glory of God. And as a result, that's why they ask Moses to be their mediator. In other words, they're saying, Moses, you can die, not us. Because they're so scared of the glory of God. And it's interesting, you know, today as Christians we sing, uh, at least we used to, I think we still sing it sometimes, but, you know, the the, the song, Our God is an Awesome God, you know? It's funny because that's not the words that we used to sing back in the 1700s and 1800s. We didn't sing Our God is an Awesome God. We sang Our God is an Awful God. Why did we change it? The word awful means full of awe, to where the point it can be terrifying, right? But we've sort of diminished that in God. We don't want to think of his glory terrifying us. We just want to think of him having some awe so that we can praise him. But literally, the the correct word here is awful, not in the sense that it's bad thing, but that it gives us so much awe when we're in the presence of it that it causes us to be afraid. Why? Because we're a sinner standing before a glorious, righteous, holy God. Think of it this way. Every single time one of the prophets or one of the men of God see a vision of God, Christ, upon his throne, what happens? They're afraid. They're absolutely afraid. And unless there's some sort of sacrifice that is made that makes atonement for their lips, for their body, for their souls, they're going to die. We don't want to think of God's glory in that way, but when the way it's, it's explained in Scripture, his, his glory is, is so great, man simply cannot take it. If you remember, it, it didn't take long before the Israelites, who had vowed to keep God's holy law, 
broke them spectacularly. Within 40 days, they had made this vow. Moses goes up to the mountain and God begins to give him the blueprint for the tabernacle in order that God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people through sacrifices. But as Moses is gone, not even 40 days, already the people are worshiping a golden calf. Already they're delving into idolatry and other aspects of sinful behavior that uh, confuses Moses and the other men who are on the mountain because it sounds like it's a war, but in fact it's revelry. Moses is so angry with them, if you remember, that he breaks the Ten Commandments and there has to be another display of the, the commandments that are engraved. Same time, if you remember, God is so angry that a plague breaks out amongst the camp and many, many people die. Because a glorious God cannot dwell in the midst of a sinful people apart from some sacrifice, some mediation. If you remember, the Lord wants to, he reveals to Moses his intention to wipe out the Israelites altogether because of this great sin. And he would have done so if Moses doesn't intercede on their behalf. He makes atonement for them. But then it's interesting as the Lord continues to talk to Moses, he brings Moses back up the mountain for another 40 days. I, would, I wouldn't want to leave those people for 40 days again after the first time. But he brings them up the mountain again. And in this case, the Lord reveals to Moses that he's not going to go with them in the wilderness. His glory will not go with them because he's afraid he's going to destroy all the people if, if he does. But Moses makes two very important petitions that are extremely important to the life of Israel and the church. And those petitions are this. Number one, he begs God to go with him, that his glory would go with his people. And number two, he also says, can I see your glory? That's a strange request, given the fact that everybody else is running for their lives. Moses is saying, I want to see more of it. And God grants him both of his requests, but not in the way that is expected. First, God shows Moses his glory, but not the fullness of his glory. If you remember, he, he only shows him his backside, if you will. And only after he hides him in the cleft of the rock so that he only sees a glimpse of the backside of God. But because of this brief encounter that he has with the glory of God, this is where we come to our text now. Moses' face shines like the sun by seeing just a glimpse of the backside of the glory of God. And it shines so marvelously that Moses ends up putting a veil over his face. Similar to the encounter at Sinai, the reason why he does this is because the people are afraid of the glory of God. And so as soon as he is done speaking with God's people, he puts the veil over his face so that they're not constantly afraid of Moses and of God's presence in their midst. See, what you don't understand, at least what I don't think we generally understand, is that in answering the prayer that God's glory would go with them, God's glory is on Moses' face. God's glory is going with them in a way that he had not expected. Certainly, at times, he comes down in the pillar of fire and the cloud, but every single day, God's glory is in their camp, and it's on the face of Moses. And yet they don't want it. They're still so afraid of it that he has to wear a veil over his face because they cannot handle the glory of God. And so the only time Moses takes off the veil is when he goes to meet with God. He takes it off. He speaks with God face to face. 
And then when he comes to tell the people what God has said, he leaves the mask off, if you will, for just a few moments while he's speaking. But then as soon as it's over, he puts that veil back over his face again. So indeed, as the Apostle Paul has said, the old covenant, the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation is still a glorious covenant. But the problem is it's a terrifying one. It's so terrifying that it actually hinders the people of God from drawing close to the Lord and growing in their faith. They're always limited in their fellowship with God because of their fear of the glory of God. Strangely, the, the, the putting the veil over his face is actually an act of mercy for the people. They can't handle it, so he veils his face. But at the same time, as I said, it's an impediment to their spiritual growth because they can't see his glory. They can't grow in their understanding and their knowledge of God's glory. Moses alone enjoys that privilege, and Moses alone continues to ask for more of it. Everyone else wants nothing to do with it. And as a result, they continue to walk in trepidation and fear, only looking to the sacrifices to to save them from their sinfulness. So it's in contrast to all of this in the Old Covenant, this ministry of death and condemnation, that Paul now explains the New Covenant in Christ as the more glorious covenant of the Spirit, which is a ministry, he says, of righteousness, of freedom, of boldness, and of hope. It's a totally different covenant altogether than the old covenant. First, the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness rather than condemnation. Instead of pronouncing judgment upon everyone who breaks the law, as the first covenant did, the new covenant pronounces a blessing for all those who meet the righteous requirements of the law. You're like, well, how is that any different? Well, because the new covenant enables one to meet the requirements by providing the one who can meet those requirements, pointing us to the law keeper, who is Jesus, who is also the Savior who dies on behalf of sinful people that they can be brought into the presence of God. This new covenant is more glorious, not only because it's a more glorious message, but because it's accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit to actually meet the obligations of the covenant. The old covenant couldn't help you meet the obligations. The new covenant guarantees that you will meet the obligations. If only you look to Christ. The minute you look to Christ, the obligations are met. And blessings begin to flow. It's it's not just a promise of life. It actually grants life through Jesus Christ. Then in addition to being a ministry of righteousness, this new covenant is also a ministry of freedom. The old covenant is continually enslaving people to the fear of death and condemnation because they cannot meet the righteous requirements. But in the new covenant, it's freeing them from that fear, freeing them from slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to guilt. They can't overcome it. Now someone is is free, not only free from that sense of condemnation, but free to say no to sin itself and to live upright and godly lives in this present age, as Paul says in Titus chapter 2. Paul is referring to the teachings of this new covenant additionally as a ministry of boldness. Unlike Moses, who had to hide his face from God, from God's people, because they couldn't bear the weight of glory, 
Paul is speaking freely with them face to face. He's shining his face before them, showing them the beauty of the gospel of Christ. He's bold to tell them. There's an answer to this dilemma. There is a cure to your sickness. There is a way of salvation through Christ Jesus. Additionally, the new covenant makes God's people themselves more bold in approaching the glory of God. If you remember, that's one of the main messages of the book of Hebrews is that before we were timid and shy and wanted nothing to do, we couldn't go past the veils to get into the Holy of Holies, but now through the cross of Christ, the veil has been torn. You can have direct access through Jesus. Now you can confidently and boldly go before the very presence of God, seeking his face and making your petitions without fear, knowing that he's going to accept you because Christ has already met the obligations in your behalf. There's no fear. You can be bold, knowing where you stand with God because of what Christ has done. Why in the world, with all of these benefits, would you ever want to go back to the law written in stone? Why would you ever want to go back to the Mosaic Covenant and try to base your standing upon keeping the law that you can't keep, that you don't want to keep? There's something wrong with the heart. It's only through Christ that there's hope. And Paul is offering us the hope of the gospel of Christ. Paul says that the men in the church who were teaching these things, the reason why they didn't get it was because they were dull of mind. It wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a spiritual heart problem. They were dull in spirit, dull in heart, dull in mind. And that's the problem with each person in the human nature. We have this natural pride that wants somehow to contribute to our own redemption, our own salvation. We all sense that we've done something wrong. We all know that something's not right, but we still hold out hope that somehow we can fix it. Does that not sound like a man? I can fix it. No, you can't. You can't fix it. Listen to your wife. You can't. You need more than directions. You need help. You need a Savior. You can't fix it. But the problem is it's so humiliating For the average human to accept this fact that he can't fix himself, he can't redeem himself, that he has to look outside of himself, that he won't come to Christ because of dullness of mind. Perhaps some of you here remember that time in your own life where you struggled to lay down your pride, to take up your cross and follow Jesus, and to know the freedom of that. What a struggle it was. You didn't know where you stood with God. You're always wondering, am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to go to hell? What does God even think of me? I don't know. What a horrible place to be in when you don't have Christ as Savior. I remember when I was a kid growing up in church, and I became very well aware of my sinful condition, and I could clearly say I was dull of mind. Uh, I, w- I was at a church that uh, I still think gave a very basic, simple gospel presentation somewhat regularly. And I refused to respond to it. I refused to get the help that I needed out of fear. I was so afraid of the condemnation of the law that I could not see that there was courage and boldness in someone who's kept it in my place. I think I've shared this with you before, but literally, um, the church that I was in, it wasn't wide like this. Um, It was probably these two rows, but it went 
long for probably another three sections after these. It was a really long church, and it was tall, and so it had pillars to hold up the roof, right? And in our church, I grew up in a Baptist church that was sort of revivalistic, and um, every, uh, in fact, I was talking to the Tunders about this the other day, every Sunday, I think we sing just as I am with at least 10 to 15 verses, right? So you, you, they would keep singing the same verse again and again and again until finally some poor soul would walk forward and say, please, end the song, you know, in that sense. And I sat in that same church 17 years of my life, and every now and then would see someone walk to the front. I never did and never wanted to. In fact, I was so afraid of God's condemnation that I purposely, I got to, to the service before my parents did because my class usually ended earlier than theirs. I would purposely position us to sit in one of the sections so that I'm standing right behind the column, behind the pole holding up the roof. So that when the pastor begins his plea about coming to faith in Christ, I don't have to look at his face. I'm serious. I did not want to see his face because by looking at his face, I felt condemned because I was not right with God. And I remember the freedom. It didn't take place there, but I I, I met a, a youth pastor who loved me and became a friend to me and explained the gospel to me. And I remember... It was actually on a beach retreat that I uh, professed faith for the first time. But the very next Sunday, I go to church, and I sit out in the open. (laughs) Give it to me. And for the first time in my life, I could look at the pastor in his face and say, I get it. That makes sense. That's wonderful. Thank God. And now some strange reason, now he's got me up here preaching to everybody else. It makes no sense whatsoever. The fearful kid who's hiding behind a column is now telling everybody else about the same gospel. You see, I use using that column in the church as a veil between me and God. I didn't want to deal with my sin. I didn't want to deal with the consequences of breaking the law. But when you understand the gospel of Christ, it's so freeing. You know where you stand. You can rest at ease knowing that when I I die, whenever it is, that God chooses to take my life. I know where I'm going. No matter how much I screw up my life, Christ is the Savior of my life. Christ is the one who has kept the law in my place. It's not based upon me. It's based upon Him. And I can rest in that. And I can be assured of God's love and assured of the peace of God because there's no double jeopardy. He can't accuse me again of sin that Christ has already paid the punishment for. I'm freed from that condemnation. And what a, what a wonderful blessing it is. Of course, God doesn't call every believer to become a pastor. He doesn't call every believer to bear a testimony in that way. But he does call every believer to bear a new testimony in Christ Jesus, both in word and deed. That's one of the greatest differences between the Old and the New Testaments. In the Old Covenant, only Moses stood in the presence of God and had his face shine with the glory of God. In the new covenant, every single believer is ushered into the Holy of Holies, goes past the veil in order that they might gaze into the glory of God. You know, even in the Gospels, if you remember, the three disciples were the only ones who got to go up the Mount of Transfiguration, see Jesus transformed before their eyes. The rest of them were down below and didn't have that same opportunity. But after Christ is crucified and he's resurrected and sends up into heaven. We see 
Now the veil is torn. Every single person can now go up into the Holy of Holies and gaze into the glory of God. And it's, it's interesting if you look at your text, verse 18. It speaks about a transformation that takes place for everyone who sees this glory. And in the Greek, it's the root word for our word metamorphosis. So it's literally a, a changing of shape or a changing of image somehow because of this new comprehension of the glory of God. In fact, uh, this word's only used four times in the New Testament, two times in reference to Christ being transfigured before the disciples on the mountain, and the other two times in reference to believers being transfigured in a similar way. In verse 18, Paul says that believers are being transformed into the same image of God that is in Christ Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So not only are they seeing the glory of God, but they're becoming glorious. But how does that happen? It's, it's not some mystical experience that, you know, suddenly a force from heaven hits you and now you're shining. It's not like that. Um, rather, it's uh, something that happens over time, he says, from one degree of glory to another. So small increments of glory. But how? Again, let's get to the, the, the nitty-gritty here. It's not a secret. It's, it's something that's actually quite simple. It's so simple that we so easily miss it. Here's the basic principle of glory transformation. You ready? We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. This is exactly what the Scripture teaches in numerous occasions. Psalm 115, verse 8 Speaking of idols, the psalmist says, those who make idols become like them, as do all those who trust in them. So in other words, if you're making idols and you're worshiping idols and you're trusting them and you're looking at idols, what does it say? You become like idols. Somehow you begin to look like them. Well, how? Well, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, he's speaking of the same problem. He says, the Israelites went after worthless idols, and so they became themselves worthless. The more they stared at worthless things, the more worthless they became. So it works the exact opposite. The more you stare at glory, the more glorious you become. Think of it this way. None of us will be placed in the cleft of the rock like Moses did as God's glory passes by. So in other words, it's not like we're the moon and all of a sudden the sun passes by in the night sky and all of a sudden our face begins to shine like the moon. It's not like that. It's not something that happens quickly and, and fades just as quickly. But rather, it's something that takes place over time and increases. And there's one other time that this word is used for the word metamorphosis or transformation scripture, and most of you know where it is. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Remember where he says there, do not be what? Conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. Now this is, uh, notice again, I mentioned this last week, but the work of the Holy Spirit is never at odds with the Word of God. Never. It's always part and parcel. They're working together. The Holy Spirit is the one who illumines our minds, which literally means He shines light on our minds to comprehend what God's Word is saying and to see in Scripture Christ. And when our minds are illumined and we begin to see Christ, we begin to be transformed into the image of Christ. If we spend time in His Word. 
If we don't spend time in His Word, how much transformation is going to take place? Not much. The Spirit can only bring to our minds what we have read. If you're not reading God's Word, you're not going to participate in this act of transformation. And so one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to actually motivate you to want to read. Right? One of the signs of a true believer is they actually want to read God's Word. And if they're not wanting to do that, there's something wrong. It doesn't always mean that they're not a believer, but somehow sin has gotten involved. And now they spend so much time beholding the world that they have no desire to behold the glory of God, you see. They become more and more worthless rather than more and more glorious. It works the same way. I mean, uh, I read something yesterday. I was, uh, you remember, uh, I think it came out in the 80s, a couple of scientists said something that, you know, when couples have spent more than 25 years together, they begin to look the same. You remember this? Well, apparently it was debunked recently, and I thought it was funny the reason why they debunked it. They said, but no, actually what it is is because we're so selfish, we just pick spouses who look like us. We like the way they look because they look like us. I don't know which one's right. Um, but nevertheless, they may not begin to actually look the same, but do they not take on the same mannerisms? Do they not begin to say the same things? Do they not begin to think similarly in a lot of ways because they've spent so much time together? Well, in the same way, someone who has spent time with Christ begins to think like Christ. Someone who begins to behold Christ begins to look like Christ. But even for those who are in the church, that they spend most of their time beholding the world, setting their minds upon the things of this earth, they begin to look like the things of this earth. But those who have set their mind upon the things of heaven begin to speak heavenly things. This isn't rocket science, guys. In fact, the secret to sanctification is not just trying harder. It's spending more time looking at Christ. That's it. You're spending your time getting to know Christ. How is someone saved? Knowing Christ. How does someone grow in their faith? Knowing Christ more. That's it. It's not doctrine. It's not learning everything you can about what you need to do or just going out and doing a bunch of things. It's just spending time, like Mary, at the feet of Jesus and getting to know him. And when you do that, you'll begin to look like him. But here's the question. I want to finish with this, if you will. Why does it take so long? Most of you don't look like Christ. <laughs> Speaking for myself here, uh, I, you know, even this morning, just the things I was saying, the things coming out of my mouth, I'm re- readily reminded, I'm like, okay, that's not what heaven would say. Why does it take so long? It's not because God can't transform us immediately. Obviously, He can, because that's what happens to, un- that's, that's what happens to the believers when Christ comes back, right? Immediately, boom transformed into glory. Can't beat that, right? That'd be awesome. It's not because we can't. um, It's not because God can't, but rather because we can't handle it. We can't handle the glory of God to be revealed in that way. Do you remember when the glory of God first um, came down upon the temple after Solomon's temple was first built? There were priests that were inside, and they all ran out. Can't handle it. It's too much to see. They can't, they can't deal with that type of glory. When Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of the three disciples, immediately they fell down in fear and had their, their heads to the ground. Jesus had to come to them after not revealing that glory anymore, putting his hand on them. It's okay, you're not going to die. They couldn't handle it. 
And it's interesting, uh, especially from the unbeliever's perspective, because in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, when Christ comes back, literally, here's the unbeliever's response to the glory of Christ's return. You ready? They begin to cry out in fear, may the rocks fall on us. Why? They say, hide us from the face of him who sits on his throne. Hide us from the glory of his wrath. We can't bear to see his face. It's the same way for Christians. We can't, we can't bear it either. If you think about it, it's sort of like, um, you know, if God were to reveal to you today his glory and its fullness, uh, physically speaking, sort of like getting sunburned, a little bit too much sun too quickly. You know, it takes a while to sort of develop that natural glow that your skin can handle some aspect of the sun. It's the same way with sanctification. It's, it's not that, you know, God's not doing his job. You can't handle it. You can't bear it. You don't want to bear it. We say we do. But then we still want to look at the sin. And so as a result, we're not ready for more glory. We're not ready for more sanctification. Otherwise, his glory would kill us. But as, as we continue to stare into the face of Christ, our eyes become more accustomed to glory. We, we, we want more of it. And we begin to ask like Moses, show, us, show me more. I want to see more of this, this glory. Then maybe I can bear it. But it says, uh, Samuel Rutherford says in the hymn that we're going to sing in just a few minutes, famous hymns called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And uh, he says it this way. He says, only in heaven or in the new Jerusalem on earth, only then will we finally be able to see his glory without a veil, without some hindrance, to see the fullness of the beauty of our king. Because then we will be transformed and ready to behold his glory. And he keeps repeating this theme. It says, where glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Uh, but even then in heaven, when even the church herself, uh, when the new Jerusalem comes, when the church herself is transformed into glory, it says the, the, he says, the bride never eyes her own garments, never looks at herself, because she knows she's just a reflection. She wants to see the glory. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. But you have to look at Christ. You, see, you, you will never stop looking at Christ. You will never look at yourself and be content, ever, even in heaven. It's only a reflection of glory. The glory resides in Christ. The glory emanates from Christ. We will always be like the moon, reflecting that glory. We will never be glory. God himself is glory. So here's my charge to you this morning. Don't go home and just try, to, try harder to live the Christian life. You can't do it. I mean, you, you, could say, you, you can make all the vows you want. <laughs> you can try. You know, make some new resolutions. You'll break them within a day. You're not going to be able to do all the things that you said you're going to do. But one thing I, I promise you that does work, <laughs> just spend more time looking at Christ. And you'd be surprised how much you change. You'd be surprised how much you can bear more of that glory. Looking at Christ. It's always going to come down to looking at Christ. And so 
we ought to be praying, Lord, not only show us more glory, but help us to bear it. Help us to receive it, that we might be comfortable gazing at the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us. We are indeed very weak. We're not capable of of seeing the sun directly. We know that our physical eyes are not capable of seeing something that bright, that brilliant. But we know, spiritually speaking, our eyes cannot even begin to behold the brightness of the glory of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us, Father. Prepare us for that type of glory. Open our eyes that we might see more of the glory of God. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.